Welcome to Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much today, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Progress and Achievement of Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma. And today's program is supported by a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. And we have many of you on the call today. There's over 202 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, so really all over the United States. Um, and we also have international participants today from Canada, India, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. Well, this is a global call, actually. Um, and um, so we're delighted that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Andrew Evans. And Dr. Evans is Associate Vice Chancellor, Clinical Innovations and Data and Analytics, Rutgers Biomedical and Health Services, Health Sciences, Associate Director, Clinical Services, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, System Director, Medical Oncology and Oncology, Lead for RWJB Barnabas Rutgers Medical Group, RWJB Barnabas Health, Professor of Medicine, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical, Center, Medical School. And Dr. Evans will be addressing an overview of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or NHL, signs and symptoms in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians, NHL staging and subtypes, and indolent and aggressive NHL. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Evans. Dr. Mesner, thank you so much for the kind introduction, and I'm really happy to be here with you and my colleagues, Dr. Haberman and Dr. Poe. It's it's real pleasure. So, yeah, boy, I could talk about those topics for more than an hour, but I will condense it into 10 minutes. And when we talk about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, at the real highest level, I think one way to think about it is it's a cancer of the lymphocytes. Lymphocytes are part of the immune system, the two most common Normal lymphocytes are B cells and T cells. And to that end, that's where the cancer, in a way, grows. And we're doing a lot of research on that epidemiology and etiology. But another lo lower level down would be a B cell lymphoma or a T cell lymphoma. Now, with that said, um, it's, it's one that, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the subtypes first before I get to signs and symptoms is more often than not, especially as a, a lymphoma expert, we'll often meet the patient after the diagnosis that they've had a biopsy. But that's the most critical part, is a biopsy. And part of the reason it's so important is not just to know, is this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but moreover, what subtype? And it's hard to believe, but true, there are well more than 75 to 80 different subtypes. All of them are treatable and many of them are curable. But the particular treatment we think about that, or treatments that would be standard options are very dependent on that subtype. 
and how we that exact subtype of the 75 or 80 or, or more, depending on how you classify them. Uh, for example, T-cell lymphoma, there's 25 T-cell lymphomas, and then over 50 different types of B-cell lymphoma, especially when you uh, consider the clinical presentation. And we really rely on our pathologists, who are also experts in their own right. And I, I almost uh, view them sometimes as detectives, because they get the biopsy and they have to test it for different, uh, almost like fingerprints, what's on the surface of the cell. And also, uh, like detectives, they do some very fancy DNA testing, DNA RNA testing, down to that level to tell us literally the cellular molecular subtype. And thankfully, our science has advanced to that part that has not only helped for diagnosis, but as Dr. Haberman will talk about, this science showing us what's on the surface of lymphoma cells and what's inside them, uh, some of the mechanisms that make them grow, in a way you can think of it, it gives us a target to treat, to design medications, whether intravenous or oral, um, depending on that. And so it's so important, you know, sometimes a biopsy um, with nobody's fault, they might do a smaller needle biopsy, and we might get enough clues to say, well, I can say it's B-cell lymphoma, and I might even think it's these five types, but sometimes we have to repeat the biopsy or do what's called an excisional biopsy, which is just to get a little more tissue because obviously we want to get it as right as humanly possible from the very beginning, because that sets up the whole prognosis and treatment, et cetera. Um, I'll just talk about the staging and then come back to signs and symptoms. So when we talk about staging, uh, there aren't too many tests besides the blood test, and we might do a, a few sophisticated blood tests, but really it's blood test, some typical form of body imaging, most lymphomas are somewhere in the body, and these lymphocytes, by the way, are inside our bones and in the blood. So we've thought of this disease um, for decades, not just years, as really a whole body disease. In other words, we might only see it in two or three places, but we know in almost every case, not every, but almost every case of lymphoma, regardless of subtype, we have to treat the whole body. Um, and, and that's another important tenet. But in terms of staging, it's really a PET scan or a CT scan, you know, scanning the whole body. Sometimes that's it. There are other select cases we might want to do a, a, an actual bone marrow biopsy to see if it's there. We don't do that for all, but for certain subtypes. And then other subtypes, there might be a few complementary additional staging studies. In some cases, we actually might want to look um, – um, of the brain, to do an MRI of the brain or a CT scan. Sometimes we'll think about a lumbar puncture. Sometimes it can hide in the spinal fluid or some other tests. The rest of the, the testing that we do is really just preparing for possible treatment, including uh, chemotherapy. So we might need an echocardiogram to check the heart. Sometimes we'll check the lung function and things along those lines. But backing up a little bit to signs and symptoms overall, especially in the context of COVID, I would say, you know, certainly COVID has affected our treatment guidelines and, and how we monitor and manage patients. And I'm, I'm sure Dr. Haberman and Dr. Poe will, will get into that a little bit. I can't say it's affected signs and symptoms except for a few cases, and it just so happens um, I, I was just able to make this call. I, I had a, I was mentioning to Carolyn, I had a a long consult this morning of, of a young uh, woman here in New Jersey who had COVID in November, a, a mild case, had a cough, and, and she thought it was all related 
to the COVID. And, um, you know, cough is a, a common symptom. In retrospect, she had a mediastinal lymphoma in her chest. And by the time she met us uh, today, now four or five months later, it actually had grown uh, quite quite uh, a big size. And so in a way, maybe COVID um, masqueraded the symptoms. What I can say is, though, um, that's a unique case. That's not a common scenario. I mean, this is a certain uh, type called primary mediastinal large cell lymphoma that presents in the chest. Most lymphomas, um, not including that type, usually would not would not re relate to those type of pulmonary symptoms, et cetera. Usually it's um, kind of whole body symptoms. You might have sometimes fatigue, drenching night sweats, high fever, weight loss, or you might feel swelling of a lymph node, which COVID should not cause swelling of lymph nodes. Although caveat there is we're always careful with the scans because we have seen and of course we recommend every patient to be vaccinated, that you can get a little temporarily mild swelling of the lymph node. And we've actually seen that, um, see it light up, so to speak, on a PET scan. So we always try to recommend if there is a PET scan being done or in the context of vaccines to have a couple week grace period so we don't get any so-called false positives from that COVID vaccine. But other than that, I would say in the context of, of COVID-19, the most common way a patient presents is usually painless enlargement of a lymph node and sometimes asymptomatic. It's just persistent, not day over day, week over week. And whether it's in the neck or the groin or somewhere else in the body. Um, and, and again, COVID, that's not a typical presentation for COVID. So most of the COVID, I would say, intersection or touch points as it relates to lymphoma are a little bit like the unique cases I mentioned, uh, also the vaccination, but really comes down to treatment because there are uh, plenty of data, I'm sure my colleagues will touch on this. Uh, we know COVID can be quite severe uh, in, generally, in general, but of course in unvaccinated, and unfortunately in cancer patients, lymphoma included, uh, patients who are under who might need a little more aggressive treatment, uh, such as a bone marrow transplant or something, CAR T-cell therapy, that I'm sure Dr. Haberman will touch on, where the immune system is temporarily but severely suppressed, there is an increased risk of complications if someone contracts COVID. And so we've always, even before COVID, recommended uh, somewhat of isolation precautions. So obviously it's, it's really just... Uh, 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 a real amplification of those uh, rec recommendations as we have for our patients. And of course, there's other supportive care techniques that I'm sure Dr. Poe will talk about to prevent infection, et cetera. Um, and then lastly, I'll just finish, Carolyn, with I mentioned going back to all the subtypes, those 75, 80 subtypes in um, some classifications more. Even though we want to know each single one down to the exact one it is, Another way to think about it is we can put them in two categories, one called indolent or low-grade, another called aggressive, high-grade. And you can have B and T cell in both those categories. And generally speaking, they're all treatable, meaning you can give a treatment, it shrinks into remission, and obviously every patient is individualized. But some big-picture differences, indolent lymphomas, and I'm sure Dr. Haberman and, and Poe have these, we have some patients who might have had a really small lymph node and incidentally, for one reason or another, had a biopsy, but feel great. And the most common indolent lymphoma is called follicular lymphoma. And it's really small, they feel great. Sometimes we won't rush to treat. Why? 
Part of the reason is it's treatable, but generally speaking, more chronic. You could use that word and, and um, not curable yet. And it's one that there are treatments, but sometimes you want to keep them in your back pocket. So I have patients 15, 20 years. They've never been treated. Um, just, you know, doing great. We see them every so often. With that said, indolent lymphoma patients usually need a treatment at some point. You go through those options, hopefully go in remission for multiple years, if not more than 10 years, and then can come back. Then you give another treatment, it goes back, et cetera. And then I have other patients who've been through over a 20-year period, five, six different treatments. And so it's usually less is more. Whereas the aggressive lymphomas, you could never wait years. Usually you can't wait months. It's one that's much more aggressive. Now, that's one side of the coin. The good side of the coin is the goal of these lymphomas is not just to treat them, but to cure them. In other words, go away, never come back. Now, more often than not, you have to use a little stronger treatment to achieve that goal, and the treatments are a little different depending on the aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but that's where just a general classification to help that differentiation. But I think I'll pause right there, and uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Evans. That was an outstanding presentation and really set a wonderful stage for today's program, just stellar and just really um, lots of information for people to then use when they um, for the rest of the call and then for the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. And Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman will be addressing relapsed and refractory NHL, novel treatment approaches, clinical trials, how research adds to your treatment options, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to be with you and your wonderful staff, Dr. Andy Evans, who I've worked with and collaborated with for years, and Dr. Christina Poe. Relapse and refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma treatment approaches is a very complicated area, but one that is evolving with remarkable successes and at a phenomenal pace. The approach depends upon the type of lymphoma that you have. As Dr. Evans has outlined, there are many different types. And the first question is, as he indicated, is it low-grade or is it aggressive? And then in a study that we did in the USA National Cancer Database of almost 600,000 patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, it's likely similar in other countries. One-third were diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, 17% were follicular lymphoma, 8% were marginal zone lymphoma, and 4% were mantle cell lymphoma. So I will focus on these. The most recent changes, as Dr. Evans has alluded to, is the CAR T-cell therapy approaches. In diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, 30 to 40% of patients relapse or do not achieve a remission in frontline treatment. The standard of care has been autologous peripheral blood stem cell transplant, which results in 30 to 60% long-term remission rates in patients that can achieve that treatment. In trials in CAR T-cells, which combines specificity of monoclonal antibodies with the active and cytotoxic function of effector T-cells have now been compared with this approach. In April of 2021, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States granted accelerated approval of lancastuximab to serine, including patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma from low-grade B-cell lymphoma and high-grade B-cell lymphoma after two or more lines of systemic treatment. 
In February of 2022, the FDA granted the Supplemental Biologics License application of lysocabdogene and marilocell, a CD19 CAR T-cell, as second-line therapy for relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and this was a global randomized multi-center phase three trial, and the remission rates are in the range of 40%. In follicular lymphoma in March of 2021, the FDA in the United States granted accelerated approval of axacabdogene cellulosal for adults, patients with relapse refractory follicular lymphoma after two or more lines of systemic therapy with remission rates in the 60% range. And mental cell lymphoma has been also approved for CAR T-cell therapy with uh, response rates in the 50% range. There are going to be a number of different CAR T-cell approaches. The approaches are to alter the fitness of the T-cells and the CD19 antigen loss. The CD19 is what makes a B-cell lymphoma a B-cell lymphoma. And so now CAR with NK T-cells and different uh, epitopes, not CD19 or 20, but CD79B are all in development, and there are going to be a large number. There are unprecedented regulatory approvals internationally by regulatory bodies such as the FDA in the United States, and I'll just review what's happened here. In diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, polituzumab, vedotin, an anti-CD79 B-cell monoclonal antibody attached to MMAE with bendamustine rituximab was approved in June of 2019. Selenixer, a selective inhibitor of nuclear export on June 22nd of 2020. Tafacidamide, an anti-CD19 antibody combined with lenalidomide, was approved on July 31st of 2020 in patients who are not eligible for transplantation. And lancastuximab to serine, a CD19-directed antibody with an alkylating agent conjugate after two or more lines of therapy failures, was approved on April 23rd of 2021. This was unprecedented. In March, in September of 2021, in marginal zone lymphoma, the tyrosine kinase inhibitor abrutinib was granted accelerated approval for patients with relapsed refractory marginal zone lymphoma with at least one prior treatment. And now we're trying to develop different approaches to CAR-T at the same time, which, uh, which are called bispecific T-cell engager therapy or BITES or BITES uh, approaches and these don't require all of the preparation that CAR T cells do. This would be off the shelf. There's one bispecific antibody, which has been FDA-approved, blinitumumab. There are 23 others in clinical trials, at least at this time, including five in lymphoma, and I won't articulate the names of these. There are studies going on with other monoclonal antibodies and checkpoint inhibitors. There are antibody drug conjugates that are similar to the polituzumab vedotin, that is the anti-CD79B monoclonal antibody attached to uh, MMAE. There are other antibodies, so rather than approaching CD19 and CD20, anti-CD47 antibodies are being evaluated in clinical trials, and maglumab and TTI621 and TTI622 are out there in clinical trials, and there are multiple combination studies that are undergoing. Coming back to follicular lymphoma, 
These patients have a long survival time. In a paper that we were involved in with the French in 2019 of over 1,600 patients, 80% uh, of patients were alive and managed in the rituximab era. So this is a complicated disease. And, and how patients get managed when uh, in relapse and multiple relapses. I've, audited, I've uh, reviewed charts where patients had 17 different treatments. Uh, and in follicular lymphoma, we've just published an article on lines of treatment in follicular lymphoma, 933 patients from eight academic centers with relapsed refractory lymphoma, and we wanted to look at the outcomes in the third-line setting or later, and there is considerable variability in treatments, and these kinds of studies are going to inform future clinical trials and recommendations for treatment. Mantle cell lymphoma is a fascinating story, and I think it really shows us how fast the pace of change has been. Uh, when I started, and I think even when Andy started, the median survival was three years, and things have really changed. The bendamustine rituximab came along with very high response rates reported in 2012, and single-agent drugs began to be reported. Bortizumab was the first to get FDA approved, and about a third of patients responded well. I had the privilege of being the first author of the uh, paper on lenalidomide. Uh, again, a third of patients responded, and these drugs were FDA approved. But then came the Bruton kinase inhibitors, Ibrutinib, uh, and the overall response rates were, were in the 70% range. And this really changed mantle cell lymphoma. This was an oral drug. Patients were no longer transplanted. And abrutinib has been followed by acalabrutinib, which has a little different safety profile, and then xanabrutinib. And now pertabrutinib, which is a selective but reversible inhibitor, is under evaluation. And another drug has come along, venetoclax, uh, which, and, which is an oral BCL2 inhibitor, again, another oral drug, with significant activity, and there there's an ongoing phase three sympatico trial internationally. So the times have been really exciting. They are incredibly complicated, and uh, are, I, don't, I always thought things would get simpler the older I got, but they got much more difficult. Well, what about clinical trials? How, research, how does research add to your treatment options? I've had the privilege of being the co-author on publications on over 21 different drugs uh, and then over 30 papers of clinical of, of, of in clinical trials uh, with multiple drug agents and this included rituximab and the rituximab era really began to change how we really approach these diseases. There are a large number of clinical trials nationally and internationally and different institutions have different opportunities. This is how we affect change, improving outcomes with new drug approvals by regulatory bodies internationally. Clinical trials in all phases of disease provide an opportunity for individual patients. There are an unprecedented number of opportunities to participate in actual treatments, but then in also agreeing to submit tissue or, or your peripheral blood uh, for genetic testing uh, and other uh, immune testing uh, that's really beginning to influence what we do. At our own institution, 
uh, last year uh, put together a report that we had we actually had 48 clinical trials open in lymphoma alone. Uh, very unique trials, such as a unique nanoparticle trial in relapsed refractory B-cell lymphomas, a high-dose vitamin C trial, which is combined with rice prior to uh, transplant. And again, clinical trials are dependent upon the institution you're at and the physician that you're seeing. Unprecedented Biology and genomic studies are paving the way for new changes and approaches that have not been approved or published in the literature. And these genomic immune and microenvironment observations are going to change what we do. Well, what about telehealth and telemedicine? Uh, this came to the forefront in the pandemic. There was some of it going on before. It was subsequently covered uh, by third-party carriers. Information, interestingly, I just saw an article come out this last week, is now coming out that patients who are, don't have the access to certain health care options are really benefiting from this approach. Uh, how long this is going to go after the pandemic ends, I don't know, but uh, telehealth and video health are, are, have become a, a real part of what we do for many reasons uh, in the pandemic. So be yourself, and then in lymphoma, it's not an indefinite plan for follow-up as physical examination is really essential along with other studies. I want to thank you for your attention, and I look forward to the question-answer segment of this teleconference. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Haberman. That was really outstanding, a really stellar presentation, and um, really providing um, so much information to our participants, and I, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Christina Poe, and Dr. Poe is Physician Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, Assistant Professor, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine. And Dr. Poe will be addressing managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort in the context of COVID-19 and its variants communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, your comfort level with adherence, taking your treatment on schedule, and guidance, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, um, uh, um, including um, uh, to the technology uh, um, to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Paul. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be here today also uh, with my colleagues, Dr. Evans and Dr. Haberman. Um, just so like Dr. Evans and Dr. Haberman have previously mentioned already, um, studies have shown that individuals with non-Hodgkin lymphoma who contract COVID-19 infection are at an increased risk of COVID-related complications compared to COVID-infected patients without lymphoma. And this risk is further increased for non-Hodgkin lymphoma patients who are receiving therapies that suppresses one's immune system. And so therefore, it is crucial that steps are taken to minimize the risk of contracting COVID infection uh, in this patient population. And so to lower that risk, the COVID vaccine is recommended for all patients, their families, and caregivers. A uh, primary series consisting of three doses of mRNA vaccine is recommended for immunocompromised patients with a fourth dose three months from the third. 
And although non-Hodgkin lymphoma patients receiving treatment containing CD20 targeting monoclonal antibodies such as rituximab or obinutuzumab may not mount an effective B-cell response for at least 9 to 12 months from last exposure, they may still develop T-cell responses, which may provide some degree of protection or reduce the severity of COVID complications. In addition, washing hands often with soap and water, cleaning frequently touched surfaces and objects, using disinfectant wipes is advised. Resting at home, limiting close contact with visitors as much as possible is recommended. But if that's not an option, avoiding peak hours, wearing a face covering, and keeping six feet of distance uh, between others is, is suggested. Delaying non-essential travel, limit emergency room visits, and hospitalizations as much as possible. Patients undergoing lymphoma treatment should alert their doctor if they develop new symptoms that could represent COVID infection so that testing and treatment with antiviral therapy or antibodies can be started promptly. And just like prior to the pandemic, patients should alert their healthcare team if they develop fever, difficulty breathing, chest pain, bleeding, or altered consciousness. Supportive medications for fevers, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation, and uh, magic mouthwash for mouth sores can still be used if needed. One of the common side effects of non-Hodgkin lymphoma treatment is a low neutrophil count. And certain treatments, such as chemotherapy or bone marrow transplants, can cause neutrophils, which is which they're a subset of our white blood cells, uh, to decrease, which leads to a, a weakened immune system and an increased risk of infections, such as COVID. And to lower this risk, especially for uh, our elderly patients, granulocyte colony stimulating factors, otherwise uh, more commonly known as GCSF, uh, such as Neupogen or Nulaska, may be prescribed with certain treatment regimens. Another side effect of non-Hodgkin lymphoma treatment um, and non-Hodgkin lymphoma itself is the increased risk of venous thromboembolism or clotting in the veins, which can be further worsened with a COVID infection. And so patients should notify their healthcare team immediately if they experience difficulty breathing or notice uh, unilateral leg pain, swelling, redness, or warmth. Every medication or treatment regimen for non-Hodgkin lymphoma has its own side effect profile, and every patient tolerates each side effect differently. The definition of a good quality of life or vice versa, an unacceptable quality of life is, is different for everyone. And so it is extremely important for patients and their doctors to have a frank discussion regarding quality of life concerns with each proposed treatment option. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Be assertive, be respectful with your healthcare team about concerns regarding choice of treatment. And every individual in a healthcare team plays different roles, um, and, but everyone functions together with the goal of delivering the best care possible to treat the patient so they can get rid of the lymphoma while still maintaining an acceptable quality of life. And similarly, adhering to a treatment schedule is very important to ensuring the success of a treatment. The kinetics and half-life of the drugs that make up each treatment have previously been extensively researched, and the treatment schedule was designed to achieve maximum effectiveness, yet be safe. 
And so failure to adhere to treatment schedules may lead to cancer resistance and suboptimal outcomes. Patients should let their healthcare team know if they have any concerns about their treatment schedule. And if toxicity is an issue, oftentimes doses of medications can be adjusted to make it more tolerable. So we're gonna sh uh, shift gears a little bit um, at the end to talk about telemedicine. Um, the COVID pandemic has affected multiple aspects of cancer care, and one being the shift from in-person visits to telemedicine appointments. Telemedicine has been important in facilitating uh, social distancing, which in turn helps lower that risk of contracting COVID. And although we hope that COVID will not be a topic of much concern in the near future, telemedicine visits are likely here to stay. So like to discuss several guidelines which will help to facilitate an efficient telemedicine visit. For the visit, patients should make sure they have the correct technology and details to attend the visit. For example, if attending on Zoom, um, patients should make sure they have the correct website link, login instructions, and good internet connection. Know the appointment time and log in at least 15 minutes before um, to allow time to troubleshoot any technical issues that may come up. Patients should come prepared to the visit with a list of topics they wanna to make sure are covered or concerns they want addressed. Once connected with the healthcare team, patients should address any privacy concerns they may have regarding the telemedicine visit. Include family or friends in the visit to help write down questions uh, and participate in the discussion. And lastly, before the visit ends, uh, patients should make sure they know the plan moving forward. Receive any orders for labs or tests that need to be performed and have a way to reach the healthcare team uh, if any problems arise um, prior to the next visit. Open Notes is a part of the federal 21st Century Cures Act that was implemented about a year ago, uh, specifying that clinical notes uh, written by the physicians must be available free of charge for patients. And so after the visit, uh, patients should review their physician's clinic notes, which will usually summarize the discussion and reiterate the plan. And just like everything, telemedicine has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, detailed physical exam cannot be conducted uh, through telemedicine, and many in-person visit elements, such as touch, physical presence, and that emotional con uh, connection may be blunted. But telemedicine is also beneficial in multiple aspects. It improves access to quality care, uh, improves access to second opinions while maintaining everyone's safety. And studies actually show that telemedicine improves patient satisfaction. So thank you for your time. I'm going to turn this back to Dr. Bester. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Poe. That was outstanding, stellar presentation, and just a wonderful information for our participants. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. And I will mention two other organizations as well that are particularly helpful to you as well. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization um, based in the United States, and we provide services to people in the United States. However, if because we have a global people on the call today, um, we do have a website, and you can go to our website, post a question there, and at one of our oncology social groups will address it and help you find the resources you need. Um, so for those who call our HOPE line, um, it's, it's staffed by about 45 oncology social workers. 
And so what do they do? Well, they'll answer the phone, first of all, when you call. And usually it gets answered very quickly because the staff are staggered to answer the questions as they come in so that they're there to answer your questions right away. Um, and usually you have a specific question, you'll ask your question, and then they'll go over all the services we offer. So what are those services? We offer support. We offer online support groups. We offer case management. Um, we also offer practical, financial, and co-payment assistance, and that is restricted to the people in the United States. However, again, for people globally, there are resources internationally that our staff, if you um, email Cancer Care, they will, one of the oncology social workers will get back to you with resources that you can access um, in your country of origin. Um, and um, we also offer about 75 of these workshops, and we do publications, and we also have a pet assistance program. Um, which um, assists people who may have a cat or a dog and have difficulty just not feeling well and not able to care for them. And um, so we have resources to help you with that. And um, so that gives you a thumbnail sketch of our programs. I also want to mention the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Leukemia Lymphoma Society also having wonderful programs for all of you on a call today. So at the end of today's program, or actually tomorrow, you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation from us. And in that evaluation, there will be all these resources and their websites and 800 numbers listed. Um, we want you to go to credible sources for your information. That's really very important to all of us. And now I'm going to ask today to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And today we'll explain to you how to cure for questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question from one of our um, participants um, for, um, for Dr. Evans. Um, are there any CD20 monoclonal antibody follicular NHL treatments available that are available to patients that experience total anaphylaxis while taking rituxan due to an allergy to the mouse component? Yeah, the quick answer is yes, although I do want to just uh, also mention that that is really rare that we ultimately can never give the rituximab. Um, what I would say is um, it's somewhat unpredictable. The good news is most patients tolerate the first infusion fine, which we give as a slow six to eight hour infusion. I would say there's maybe about a third of patients who have a mild reaction. We slow it down, give some extra pre-medications. There may be whether it's two to three percent, maybe less, who have a really severe reaction. And at least, in, and I'll see what um, t um, Tom and, and uh, others say, but in those cases, we will do a desensitization protocol uh, in the hospital. And I can't remember the last time. It's, I mean, maybe there was one case 10 years ago where after we do a detailed desensitization protocol, we're not able to, to give it. Um, but it is it is quite uncommon. Uh, there is another antibody, obinutuzumab, but you can often uh, run into the very same, if not more, in terms of problems. Um, there's not a fully humanized out there. there. Obviously, there are other targeted therapies, as Dr. Haberman uh, elucidated quite nicely. So, Tom, I don't know if you have or, or Dr. Poe other experience 
or, or maybe a comment to that important question? This this is really a hard uh, situation, and um, I, I actually wrote the initial RCHOP study for the, and then got the FDA approval in large cell lymphoma, and then was on the low grade study that got the FDA approval. So they've been around rituximab since '94, and um, I agree with Andy um, uh, that I, I can only think of I think one desensitization that I was involved in. Um, I agree that abinutuzumab probably, you know, isn't uh, isn't pure. There's still a mouse component. The rituximab is about a 15% mouse component, um, and so it's. I when I'm confronted with patients because this isn't one of the only rituximab toxicities that's a problem. You can see significant neutropenia uncommonly also, and so I, we've been fortunate to have other drugs come along, and so. And approaches, and so I, I've moved more of those directions than a. And, and we have a very good allergy department and everything, so we can get someone desensitized. But uh, that's a complicated process, and not without its risks. Thank you. Interesting. Uh, uh, Christina, add? any thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with what's been said already. Um, I've seen um, rituximab and even anaphylactic reactions to it uh, several times. And each time we uh, admit the patient to um, the hospital, do rituximab desensitization or just run the rituximab over at a very slow rate over a couple of days. And usually patients are able to tolerate that. Um, so it, ha I haven't seen anybody who absolutely could not tolerate rituximab at the end. But that being said, there are a number of uh, treatments that are emerging for follicular lymphoma that may not involve rituximab, even though rituximab is still a very important and extremely uh, useful drug for this disease. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. I hope that is helpful to our participants. Great question and uh, wonderful responses to it. So thank you. Um, and um, a question um, for um, Dr. Haberman. Um, how can I prevent relapsed or refractory NHL? <laughs> that, that, that's the magic question. Um, the there things that the the only thing that I talk to patients about is we in our MER we follow patients um, in our molecular epidemiology research project, and we have patients fill out these for over starting 20 years ago, and we actually reported uh, uh, on on quality of life things and so forth. And the interesting thing is those patients who met or exceeded the national recommended requirements for exercise for age and sex had a longer lymphoma-specific survival and a longer overall survival. And we know that exercise can stimulate cytokines. We know cytokines have some things to do with uh, managing lymphoma over the years. Um, and that's really the the only thing that I think there's data on uh, as far as supplements and so forth. We we really don't have good randomized data to with on immune supplements to to indicate that uh, they, that 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 improves uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, 
I'd be interested in Andy's comments uh, and then uh, Christina's also. Yeah, I would just uh, completely agree. It's obviously you know, a lot of research and breakthroughs, as Tom nicely depicted, in the therapeutic part. Um, the other, you know, beyond that, and, and there are certain strategies, um, for example, maintenance, rituximab, et cetera, but let's say non uh, therapeutics, whether monoclonal antibodies, chemotherapy, or other targeted. There's a lot of good theories and hypotheses, I would say, and, and ongoing trials. Tom um, has, has worked, uh, obviously, at a fantastic center, Mayo Clinic, and have been national and international leaders in lymphoma, and they have several projects looking at, uh, mentioned vitamin D and, and some other hypotheses. Just right now, nothing has broken through at least in terms of like a natural supplement or, or anything along those lines. You know, what about exercise? Something as simple as that. I mean, obviously, we'll recommend that because it's healthy. Uh, could that actually have a certain lymphoma effect? We don't know. So it's, it's one that certainly we're not ignoring, but no uh, silver bullet, I guess you could say, out there in terms of reducing. It's just obviously we do our best to treat. We hope um, patient goes into remission. And if it's uh, potentially curable and fantastic, um, the only other thing I would say it's not so much a preventative um, treatment or intervention, but we are looking at doing a better job of understanding so-called rare cells. Um, you know, it's true not just for lymphoma, but any, any cancer to see on a PET scan, a CAT scan, or even to feel it, it takes billions to trillions of, of cells. Once we're down to millions or even thousands. Uh, per milliliter of blood, you can't see it, and that's often why any cancer can relapse. So there's a lot of research ongoing into that, kind of the diagnostic, uh, something called minimal residual disease, uh, different technologies, ctDNA, looking at that. So I think that's not exactly the question, but at least is another way to say, hey, can we pick it up? Maybe we might be able to prevent it with the initial treatment, but let's pick it up ultra early even when it's at the uh, almost like invisible phase. Christina, anything on the prevention side of the aisle that we missed? Yeah, I mean, I agree with what's been said. Unfortunately, there is no, you know, magic drug uh, or magic food or magic supplement to um, that, that has been proven to prevent relapsed um, disease. And so, you know, living a healthy lifestyle, every uh, living with, doing things in moderation. Uh, that's what I tell my patients. Excellent. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, I think it's wonderful for our participants to hear from all of you because I think it's very rare that um, participants have three um, esteemed uh, physicians answering their questions, so it's wonderful. That's a, kind of a nice component of this program today. Um, and um, a question uh, for uh, Dr. Poe. Are there any limits on what I can do while receiving treatment for NHL? Um, if the question means physical limits, I usually say no, although we, I tend to tell my patients to, you know, take it easy, don't go running marathons, don't go rock climbing. Um, so in general, general, it, it depends on how a patient feels throughout their treatment. If, if they feel well enough that they feel like they can exercise, they can do stuff, then by all means do it. We want our patients to stay active to, as much as possible, be able to do what they normally do um, throughout their day. Um, 
But at the same time, we also want them to be sure to not overdo um, things and, and then feel bad later on. Um, any thoughts, Tom, Andy? I think that the older I've gotten, the more I've really come to really encourage to have as normal of a lifestyle as you can have. But secondly, I actually encourage exercise um, I, and, and even to those patients who haven't done much of that. And as long as we're not putting patients on regimens and at risk with low platelet counts and so forth, uh, to, to have some guidelines there. But uh, I think to uh, to not lose muscle mass, and when we think about the median ages of these diseases in the 63 to 65 range, when you all of a sudden take six months and take six months off, uh, you lose muscle mass. And that muscle mass is hard to get back. Yeah, this is Andy. I totally agree with my colleagues. And, and, and as you could imagine, especially, let's say, even during chemotherapy, um, well, how much, how little should I do? I mean, it's a lot of common sense. And I'll, I'll just use a simple um, view as obviously listen to your body. And if you have some energy and you feel like taking a walk or a treadmill, et cetera, then great. But obviously, especially during active treatment, especially chemotherapy, not to push it too much. If you're tired, God forbid, dizzy, uh, to, to definitely rest, sit down, don't push through it. And then maybe lastly, related to this, it's just hydration. We don't think about it enough um, that, especially early on in treatment, there, there uh, needs to be extra hydration, water, other fluids, Gatorade etc. can can really make a difference, not just with protecting our kidneys, but even preventing constipation and, and giving a little boost of energy. Excellent. That was a great, wonderful um, tips for everyone. Um, and um, a question from one of our participants um, uh, for Dr. Evans. Could you please mention more about the vitamin C trials? Vitamin C as in cat? Um, not uh, D, vitamin C. Said C. Uh, vitamin C is, yeah, vitamin C, yes. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think vitamin C, I'll say, has a double-edged sword. Um, my mentor at Northwestern, I trained and was faculty uh, for 10 years, who is a close colleague of Dr. Dr. Haberman, uh, Dr. Leo Gordon, um, was fascinated, and I think still is fascinated with vitamin C. So some people think, was well, it an antioxidant, et cetera? It, you have to be very careful. Um, vitamin C in certain doses can actually be a pro-oxidant, not an antioxidant, can actually increase so-called reactive oxygen species and free radicals, which aren't good sometimes. And, and in a way, not just vitamin C, frankly, any supplement, I think there always needs to be caution and, and extreme modesty um, because, you know, we know how certain treatments work, whether chemotherapy, rituximab, you get a little nervous that could something actually increase a side effect panel um, or, or a toxicity with that or chemotherapy or, God forbid, mitigate the effectiveness of a certain medication. So what I would certainly counsel, if someone wants to take a normal dose vitamin C, a normal daily allowance, fine. Outside of a clinical trial, I would not recommend any kind of robust or higher dosing of vitamin C or, or really almost any vitamin, assuming, you know, levels are normal and there's not scurvy or something like that or some other, you know, severe vitamin deficiency. I, I think really good thoughts and ideas, but we always, you know, just kind of want to be careful even with anything over-the-counter um, 
Christina, Tom, any extra thoughts? I mentioned that we do have a high-dose vitamin C trial in relapsed refractory lymphoma. We actually, one of our fellows did some really beautiful genomic work to show an upregulation of a pathway that might be very important. So we think scientifically there's a reason to do high-dose vitamin C, but we do not support it at all off-study. Um, and I, the daily uh, vitamin C at the doses you'd get over the counter, um, I, we, we don't recommend either. But until we did that genomic study, uh, I really didn't. Yeah, believe that's fascinating. That. I didn't know that, Tom. That's that's one. No, I, mean, I don't. I'll, it's send, not surprising I'll send you the because, paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's why we're it's doing not surprising. the study. We, yeah, we just did like the, you know, Leo loves free radicals and reactive, like we showed it as pro-oxidant and might treat, to your point, lymphoma. We had never uh, gone to the depth to, hey, what pathways? That's great. That's great data that, and great that you guys are looking at in a clinical trial. Christine, I would imagine you would agree avoiding any high-dose supplements, et cetera? Yeah, definitely. And I would also, also say, you know, high-dose supplements, although it seems like um, a lot of my patients ask me about it. it may seem promising. Um, there's definitely news out there uh, that says it, you know, helps significantly cure or even cure cancer. By all means, I would not recommend uh, that as the sole treatment option. Um, definitely not the not in not not to replace um, any treatment options that your doctor talks about. This has been an extraordinary program. I want to thank our speakers, and I actually want to ask you each if you would like to give a takeaway to the audience from today's presentation, just a sentence of what you think, um, you know, uh, is important for people to just take away from today's program. Um, so I'll start with Dr. Evans, if you like to give Sure. A thank you so much again uh, for a fantastic session, and I, I say it every time, and I'll say it again. I learn something every time listening to my, my colleagues. So. <laughs> Um, myself. And yeah, I, I'll keep it under my rubric. So just lymphoma, very heterogeneous, um, pathologically speaking, heterogeneous clinically speaking, and obviously that doesn't include the individual patient and their own characteristics, past medical history, physical status, etc. The good news is there has been such an explosion of science that has helped unearth these, this kind of diagnostic um, spectrum that we have and has not only helped us diagnose quicker but at a very detailed uh, molecular level to really get it right and and know what is the best pay, the best treatment um, or I should say the right treatment for the right patient at the right time and it's through all this great science that it not only sets up diagnosis, et cetera, but also sets the table quite nicely for treatment and, and to help more and more as we talk about individualized or personalized medicine. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Evans and uh, Dr. Haberman. These are unprecedented times for uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma upfront, but in relapse especially. I've just been to the LRF meeting a couple of weeks ago, then to the ECOG meeting. Andy is involved in the leadership team of the Lymphoma Committee, and then I was just uh, involved in a grant review at a very large institution all day yesterday. And it's just the opportunities in patients who, the topic I covered today, relapse in all histologies, is really quite remarkable. So if there are issues, 
don't hesitate to reach out, find other uh, other opinions and other thoughts. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Poe? Um, just to echo what my colleagues have already said, um, just so many advances in the field of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and um, it's become a very a treatable cancer and in many cases curable. And so um, if there's any concerns about the treatment, uh, really about anything uh, related to cancer care, just be open with your doctor, bring your concerns to them, and, and you know, a lot of times they can be addressed. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants also for asking such great questions. Um, and um, we could go on for another hour, but I said this would be a one-hour program. So I want to address all of you who are um, still in queue and have questions that you would like to ask. Um, so I want to just address that right away up front. So for those of you who either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or are thinking of another question, um, we'd like you to take the information you learned today and go back to your treating healthcare team. Uh, they know you the best. They know the details. Uh, you know of your of your treatment, and um, they they would be very good people to ask your questions to. Again, having heard information on today's program, very important to use your healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists of many people. It consists of your physician. It also consists of the oncology nurse, oncology social worker, patient navigator, financial navigator. So lots of different people who can help you with different concerns you may have, um, and. I also, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I want you to now know, or any type of cancer, I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. And that community of support includes Cancer Care, Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And we're going to, at the end of today, well, by tomorrow, you'll be getting a survey monkey, which is an evaluation, which we'd like you to complete. But in addition to that, it'll also include all the references to resources that are credible that we'd like you to check in addition. If you want to check for more information in addition to your healthcare team, but always bring it back to your healthcare team, these are well-respected organizations that have information that's constantly monitored and is quite up-to-date and respected um, and is evidence-based. That's very important. So we want to be sure that you don't um, just Google a topic and, and see what you find. We want you to go to really credible resources for your information. So important. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.